This podcast is made thanks to contributions from listeners. Together, you've helped to create more than 550 episodes over the last eight years, exploring all the edges of permaculture. I'd like to take a moment to thank each and every one of you for that. This show wouldn't be possible without you. As the show celebrates its ninth anniversary, can I continue to depend on your support for another year? In asking this of you, I'm not looking to generate excess capital, but the show can't continue without your help. If you could dedicate $5 a month, or an annual contribution of $60 this year to the show, I can continue this work full-time while earning a living wage. So before getting to my interview with Michael Judd, I'm going to pause here for a moment and encourage you to invest in this renewable resource for our community. You can do so online at paypal.me slash permaculturepodcast, become an ongoing donor at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, or you can also send something in the mail. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dauphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Today, Michael Judd joins me to discuss his newest book, For the Love of Pawpaws, a mini-manual for growing and caring for pawpaws from seed to table. During this in-person interview, we start with what he's currently working on, including where he's gone with natural burials and his exploration of chestnuts as a way to plan for the future. From there, we talk about North America's largest fruit, the pawpaw. During the conversation that follows, Michael shares the resurging interest in this tree and fruit, the development of named cultivars and improvement of pawpaw genetics, thanks to growers like Neil Peterson and Jim Davis. We also touch on growing your own pawpaw, as well as the flavor and nutrition of the fruit, and end with what you'll find if you make it to his annual pawpaw festival, which recently celebrated its fourth year. Enjoy this interview with Michael, and I'll join you again after. After many years, I'm back here at Long Creek Homestead with Michael Judd as we sit down to talk about his new book, For the Love of Pawpaws. So, Michael, what's been going on since our last interview? We had a conversation in late 2017, which went out in the beginning of 2018, talking about natural burials and end-of-life care and caring for the living as well as the dying. And it's been a while then, and now you're writing about pawpaws. I've continued my work with the natural green burial and working on getting maybe the first green cemetery in Maryland going. And otherwise, uh, we've been having our festival. I've been working on writing this new book, For the Love of Paul Pauls, uh, over the last couple of years. And it's gratefully out now, uh, the summer here of 2019. And my energy now and focus is going into hybrid chestnuts sort of commercially viable hybrid chestnuts uh, for a number of reasons. A lot of it is looking into the future and doing scenario planning for 40 years. You know, my son is five years old and I'm 45 and I think, wow, you know, what's, what's it going to be like in 40 years for him? And of course we don't know, but I do a lot of scenario planning. Uh, I got a lot of inspiration from... David Holgram. So you did a great interview with him. And he wrote a book that's not, I mean, it's almost a booklet uh, that's not very well known, but I highly recommend it, called Scenario Planning for the Future. And it's great in the sense that uh, you you just start to think about all the different possibilities. We don't know how things are going to juxtapose with climate change, economic shifting, and he kind of plays out all these different scenarios of what could happen. 
And it helps you just start to think, okay, well, we don't know, but what can we start to do uh, to buffer or, you know, plan for? And so to me, after I've gone down many of those rabbit holes, I've simplified it to planting chestnuts. And this is not the American chestnut. Uh, At this point, you know, what is being productive and producing continuously large harvests are the Asian largely Chinese, Japanese, Korean um, hybrids in our region. They're blight resistant uh, and extremely productive. You know, you're looking at probably a minimum of 2,500 pounds per acre and potentially upwards of 6,000 pounds per acre every year. So they produce every year. They're not sort of biannual producing like a lot of nuts. And if you look back in the history, the human history, you see how the chestnut has helped our species move through some of its hardest times. That's inclement weather for long periods, whether it's uh, warfare. And so the chestnut has been an ally of our species. And when I look into the uncertainties of the future, it looks like one of the most stable investments, both of time and money right now, of what's available. And the trees can live and be productive for over a thousand years. So we're really looking far into the future when we're talking about these. But even more immediate, the bottom line is they're extremely economically profitable, potentially the most economically profitable uh, of any legal crop in the U.S. right now. Now, of course, you've got a lag of, you know, six, seven years they start to produce. But yeah, by year 10, you're starting to get your return back and then it's all up, you know, uphill profits from there. So it's food security and it's good economic security. So I've been building out models for large orchards and, and attracting, you know, mainstream, you know, economic interest in it so that hopefully the money will drive the, you know, the plants, uh, you know, getting in the ground and creating all the benefits you get from perennial agriculture, you know, the improved, you know, wildlife conditions, and water cycles and soil erosion, you know, all that stacks in there, but I'm not leading with that. I'm trying to get, you know, all of these cornfields and soybean fields and all these open, denuded landscapes planted with perennial crops. I think, at least at this stage of my understanding, one of the, one of the most realistic ways to do that is to, is to get the money behind it. Because that's, that dictates how we use our landscapes now. Mostly, you know, to not positive ends. Well, and using the financial interest to drive these conversations, it's a... Last week, I recorded an interview with Joshua Hughes out of Verde Energia Pacifica in Costa Rica, he and his partner, Amanda Wilson. And that was largely what they're talking about, is how can we use the, this economic base and these existing systems in order to drive our ability to create ecological change? And that really does seem to be the way, because if we start talking in dollars and cents, that's what investors understand, that's what people with land understand, and then we can do the rest of it as part of just our work as people who are interested in this. Yeah. Sneak it in. There's a recent article in the Permaculture magazine, uh, the one out of England. I haven't finished reading it, but it's about, you know, natural capital. And and I think he calls this mode of thinking neoliberal. Uh, you know, how do we use the economics to drive thing? And of course, anyone, you know, everyone's going to have an argument this way or that. And there's, and yeah, in an ideal world, maybe we wouldn't have to, you know, manipulate things to create uh, the landscapes we want or the economy. You know, I'm going to give it a shot because I, you know, I've got a vision of, of seeing a million plus, you know, nut trees, which is not that much, really, in the scheme of things. Yeah. We might be able to do that in our region. And, and in that vein, we've started a grassroots nonprofit called Silvo Culture, 
uh, based here in Maryland. And its focus is toward creating uh, mostly nut cooperatives with the chestnut being the focus and getting landowners uh, involved, getting them the right genetics and then creating the end game, which is the market. So we're going to you know, landowners and saying, uh, you know, here we're going to help you get established. You know, we'll help get the trees in the ground. We'll work out a, a maintenance plan and then we will guarantee buying your nuts as part of our cooperative. So it's kind of a guarantee. And a lot of people have fallow land. A lot of the wealthy are buying up these farms and estates and don't know what to do with them. You know, they're either just having it hate or something. And, but these are economically savvy people. So if you can put together the XLs and uh, the returns on investment, the ROIs, which for the chestnuts, very strong. Michigan State University and Missouri State University both have really good worksheets online uh, where you can see how these are being uh, proven economically. So anyone listening, I do, do recommend uh, investigating the Asian hybrid uh, chestnut game. You mentioned fallow land and what kind of land, soil, nutrients do these trees need to grow on? Because I know that there are certain crops that mm-hmm. do really well on land that is not, you know, the best thing out there, which is what a lot of permaculture folks are looking for, is something that's not prime crop land in order to restore and looking for things that they can plant there. So the the hybrid Asian chestnuts, and I think generally a lot of the chestnuts, they like good drainage. So you can't put them in a, in a low wet area. Uh, a low area could also create frost damage on the flowers or to the buds, actually, even before they flower. So draining, you know, rolling hillsides is great. Uh, You know, they will take steeper slopes. You might sacrifice some of your productivity. But one of the beautiful things about the the chestnut is that it'll take less than ideal land. Once established, very drought-tolerant, fast-growing, super productive. I mean, this is an incredible species. This is you know, one of the most adaptive and productive species on our planet to work with. And I think, yeah, along with fungi and a few others, you know, if, if our species really wants to pull through this extinction, we'd better really start pairing strongly with these others. And that's your plan for the futures with chestnuts. But right now, a lot of your work has been in proselytizing the pawpaw mm. between taking the fruit to people and getting them to try it. I know that I've had your homemade pawpaw ice cream a couple of times, which is always amazing. And so what brought you to this incredible North American fruit? Ah, the pawpaw. So the pawpaw is really the only member of the tropical custard apple family uh, that has the soursop and the cherimoya in it that has basically migrated north all the way up to southern Canada and Ontario, sort of hitchhiking on the uh, receding glaciers over millenniums and through the guts of mastodons. and uh, So another amazingly adaptive species, the pawpaw. And so well, I lived in, the, you know, in Latin America in the tropics for almost 20 years and worked with tropical permaculture food forest systems, food security, same things I'm doing here, but I did it there. Uh, really cut my teeth in the tropics. And I grew the custard apple, the bitty ba, the cherimoya, the soursop, and the lang lang too as a, as a member of this family, which I just love. They're abundant, they're tasty, they're tough. So the fact that there is a custard apple family that grows here where I'm from originally in Maryland, it's kind of a perfect marriage. But aside from that, you know, in permaculture, you know, we observe what's doing naturally well in our environment, right? And we work with that energy, because it's already there and it's flowing. We don't have to interact or do very much 
for it to become abundant or responsive. And, and, you know, in Nicaragua, where I lived, you know, mangoes just, just were like crazy, just growing almost like weeds everywhere. So I was like, okay, I'm going to really focus on mangoes down there and diversified and got different varieties for different flowering, for, for food security, you know, for many months of the year. So here, the pawpaw grows wild and abundantly. The, you know, this is big time pawpaw country, but the pawpaw has a really big range. You know, from from Texas, uh, Louisiana, you know, all the way up to, you know, southern Ontario, you know, out west. Um, well, shucks, you can go all the way to the west coast in certain areas. Uh, it's it's really abundant um, in, in sort of the Appalachian region. And so it's okay. Okay, we see these growing really well and being productive. Well, not always productive. I should back up there. A lot of times the wild pawpaws, you will encounter them in the woods as a patch, right? And they may only be six or seven feet tall in the deep shade, and it may just look like a huge shrub, you know, multiple stems everywhere. And oftentimes that is just one mother plant in the middle that has sent up, you know, all of its children as suckers, right? So genetically, it's, it's actually all the same plant. And it could be a thousand or more years old. This is really cool, you know, like the aspen. And some honey locusts, uh, you know, their root systems, you know, can live for, you know, a thousand plus years. So the mm-hmm. pawpaw is in this awesome category. So anyway, don't get me going down that evolutionary uh, rabbit hole, but you could be looking at a very ancient uh, stand there. And when you find them like that in the wild, in the deep shade, and it's only really, ge- it's all genetically the same, you often will find no fruit, right? No fruit on that at all. Whereas you come out to the edge of the woods, so around here the CNO Canal is well known for pawpaw foraging because there's a little bit of light. So the trees, the pawpaws that come out there, they get tall and lanky, you know, maybe 20 feet tall, and they will produce fruit relative to how much sun they get. So oftentimes, you know, maybe 10 pounds of fruit per tree. And if there are two genetically different trees near each other to cross-pollinate, then you'll get the fruit. So you need the sunlight, and you need some sunlight, and you need to be able to cross-pollinate to start getting the fruit from the pawpaw. Uh, and then if you pull that pawpaw out into full sun, you know, give it shade for the first year of its life, give it good moisture, good, good, uh, good mulching, that will turn into a beautiful pyramid-shaped tree. Gorgeous, what I call edible landscape all-star. Very beautiful, attractive tree. It's, it's tropical. It's got huge tropical lobed green leaves. Beautiful, you know, like I said, you know, pyramid shape, not really troubled by pest and disease. So like a a, a no-care beauty. And in full sun, and if you've got some of the select genetics, you're going to be getting large, like large mango-sized fruits. You know, one, sometimes up to two pounds. Big fruits. And you can get upwards of 50 pounds of harvest per tree. So it's not a novelty. It's not like, oh, yeah, cool, there's a couple fruits. It's like, boom, it gluts a lot of fruit in the right conditions. Now, like the chestnut, it likes good drainage. So a lot of times you'll hear about them growing by streams, which they do on the banks where their roots can drain yet have access to all that humidity and moisture. Having that big leaf means that it evapotranspirates a lot of moisture. So you want to make sure it's not in heavy wind and it, it struggles in drier parts of the world or I should, yeah, in this country, the U.S. 
But I think some of that can be played with with gray water systems. So if you're listening to this, you're in New Mexico and you're thinking, oh, it's really dry here. Try, you know, hacking into your, you know, your plumbing, pull it out into a gray water trough bed and maybe put some pawpaws around it. And you can kind of create the conditions that it needs, which is kind of access to consistent moisture, yet draining soil. That was a lot, huh? Yeah. Well, and it's fascinating to me because it was, the pawpaws of fruit really only came onto my radar maybe six or seven years ago. But I grew up in the Mid-Atlantic. Like, I hiked the CNO Canal mm. all the time as a kid because I grew up about, what, 30, 40 miles west of here, where we are today in, in Frederick, Maryland. And so, coming back to this and being introduced to the pawpaw, I was like, I've seen these trees everywhere, but I've never seen the fruit. I never heard about it. And then it was, you know, as we were talking about the vi- the commercial viability of the chestnut, I was thinking about the pawpaw because for a long time it hasn't been. And only as it's been explored because is it Neil Peterson? Is he the one who really started breeding pawpaws? You know, and now there's conversation about how can we make the seeds a little bit smaller, make the pulp easier to harvest. I'm seeing people who are freezing it, who are canning it, who are turning it into products. And it's been amazing to watch that revolution of something that's been here my entire life that I didn't know about. Right. So, you know, 100 years ago, in 1916, I think it was the American Genetic Association, had a competition and put it out there to everybody in the country, hey, send us your, your best pawpaws. This is back in the day, a slow mail too. Yeah. So really that was part of their thing was, okay, well, what's going to travel well? What's going to make it to us? And they got a huge response because it was a very strong part of the culture a hundred years ago. In the woods, on farms, homesteads, you know, this was a common fruit sold, you know, during the season at markets and whatnot. People still went in the woods more, right? And there's one of the catches is people stopped going in the woods, right? So not a lot was done after that, actually, unfortunately, that, that kind of, you know, that was it. And then... Uh, yeah, Neil Peterson, who I consider really the, the guru, mm-hmm. his nickname is Mahatma, Pawpaw, lives near me. He's a good friend uh, in Harper's Ferry, and he has dedicated his life to developing and tracking down some of those old genetics and crossing them and stabilizing them and then coming up with, now he's got seven released cultivars named after uh, U.S. rivers. Uh, that's why you got Shenandoah, Susquehanna, Rappahannock, Wabash, da 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 da, uh, and they are fabulous selections. And they have a they have a variety of flavors too. So the pawpaw can, on one end of the spectrum, be sort of uh, light and very sweet, and on the other end of the spectrum, can be very rich and complex in flavor. So, which is great because everyone has kind of a different, um, different take on, on how, how rich they like their fruit. Mm-hmm. So, Neal's, like for example, Shenandoah is a very popular uh, variety of Neal's um, for many reasons. It's a, it's a wonderful growing tree, produces wonderfully over a longer period of time than a lot of other trees. Sometimes we'll produce fruit singly, whereas uh, pawpaw usually produces in clusters, so another unique characteristic is the Shenandoah, but it has a firm flesh, a light-colored firm flesh, because the, the flesh can be from light yellow to like almost a rich orange. And so the, the Shenandoah has a light color yellow to it, a pretty firm flesh, because the flesh can vary in consistency between cultivars as well, from something that's more avocado-like, mm-hmm. uh, like sweet avocado. And then that, uh, the Shenandoah has that. So a lot of people we find at our fest and other tastings Generally like that one because it's lighter and sweeter, right? Mm-hmm. Which was a lot of people like. Whereas me, you know, I like durian. You know, I like really, I like as pungent and rich as it can get. So I like uh, varieties like like Susquehanna, 
which is a deeper orange, rich, more complex flavor. And one of the things I love to do when I do tastings or at our pawpaw fest, people have never tried it. I'm like, what does it taste like to you? And I've gotten every response. Uh, really, usually it's whatever they think of as their favorite tropical fruit. Uh, because they do have the flavors of banana and mango and pineapple. And I think, you know, avocado. And, and it's just, it's phenomenal. And, and it's not like, mm, maybe. It's like, wow, it's super in your face. The aroma. Uh, you know, uh, like I said, I lived and grew fruit in the tropics for almost 20 years, and I consider the pawpaw one of my favorite fruits. I consider it, even though it's not tropical, I, I think of it as my favorite tropical fruit because it is outstanding. And I think about that flavor and all the ones that I've had, whether wild harvested or some of the cultivars, because I've gone to a few small pawpaw festivals where they were giving samples of the different fruits and also some of the products made from them. The first thing that always gets me from some of the wild ones that I've had is almost like a banana, a vanilla banana custard. Mm. It's like always the place that it starts. Yes. And now that I've gotten used to them, though, like you can smell them and you have one here sitting on the table as we're talking <laughs> and like you, the entire room just smells like Paul. Oh, the aromas. It's amazing. It is amazing. You know, when I, when I, when I have to load these up in my car, it's, you can almost get high on it. It's really amazing. Yeah. I, I like that. Uh, banana, vanilla, custard, really. It's like a dessert. Yeah. It's a dessert and a fruit, and it's actually hard to eat more than one at a go. They're so rich yeah. and nutrient-dense, you know. They've got a full amino acid count. So they're really, yeah, one of the only fruits that has, like, maybe the only fruit that has, like, a complete, you know, protein count to it. And then just packed with nutrients. And then there's a lot of medicinal qualities to the tree as well. So the leaves and the twigs and the bark have, are strong in a compound that's known as acetogenin. And this extraction is being used and proven to be really effective in certain cancer treatments uh, and even helping with the chemo treatments. Uh, so it's, it's really an amazing species on many levels, not just for its amazing fruit. But, you know, I think South Korea has planted you know, upwards of a million of these uh, for a mix of its fruit and for its medicinal compounds. So I think in the future we're going to hear more and more about uh, this as a medicine. But yeah, to, to give the other side of the coin there, as far as cultivars versus wild, uh, you know, there are a lot of outstanding wild pawpaws that have been selected. And really, previous to Neil's work, a lot of the selections that are still out there, like uh, Overlease uh, and Sunflower, two very popular, um, Mango, you know, a lot of these other well-known pawpaw varieties are, you know, wild selections or ones that, you know, came out of someone's backyard. Uh, so there are a lot of good wild genetics out there. You do kind of have to hunt for them. Unfortunately, what a lot of people experience for the first time when it comes to pawpaws is a wild pawpaw, which are often kind of small, uh, maybe like a very small potato. And there's the pawpaw seed generally is pretty large, you know, three quarters of an inch, half inch, three quarters of an inch. And in a small little potato sized wild fruit, you know, there might be six or seven seeds in there and it's just a little bit of flesh. Mm -hmm. And that flesh could be, you know, bitter and tannic, depending on the genetics, right? So unfortunately, a lot of people will try that as their first pawpaw. Sometimes it's been on the ground for three days, you know, and it's black, and they're all excited. Oh, I've had a pawpaw. And it's like, uh, not, not maybe the best representation. And you definitely don't want to eat a pawpaw before it's ripe. And that'll clean you out. And that comes back to some of that medicinal aspect. But, I, you know, there are good pawpaws in the wild. And if you do find a really good one, you know, consider 
uh, maybe going back and getting a cutting from it and, and grafting it and growing it out because it's a very adaptive species, obviously. Look, it's come all the way up north. It's eager to adapt and work, and that goes for working with our human species as well. Another reason I'm drawn to it is that there's there's a lot of genetic opportunity and in interaction with the pawpaw. And your book is titled For the Love of Pawpaws, a mini-manual for growing and caring for pawpaws from seed to table. And it's one of those things, you cover everything from like selecting what you want to grow to how to grow it, how to graft it, selecting rootstock, how to cook with it, how to eat it. And it's just, it's like sitting here with you now, reading your book and any of your material that I've come across over the years always has a passion and a love for what it is that you're doing comes through in that. But hearing it now, Mm -hmm. like now I can understand why you would write this book because it really is just something that has captured you as a fruit from really seed to table. Yes. And, you know, I grow a lot of food forests, and over the years I've worked with a lot of diversity, experimenting, trialing things for our region. And now every time something doesn't work or takes too much energy, I just stick a pawpaw in. (laughs) I'm like, it's just so perfect. It works so easily, and it's so productive, and it's desired, you know. So I find planting things, if they don't really get harvested as great as they are, if they're not fitting into the social, you know, dynamics uh, then it's not, you know, it's not worth it. You really got to follow where people's interests are. And that's one of the reasons I wrote the book. One of the reasons I'm even focusing on pawpaws is I'm always focused on perennial agriculture, right? And right now there's a lot of interest in the pawpaw. It's kind of renaissance. I think the, what was it, NPR called it the hipster banana, right? And, and our pawpaw fest proves that there's, there's, there's a lot of energy and interest in this. Um, so to a degree, for me, it's a poster child for perennial agriculture, right? People have an interest in the pawpaw, and then, you know, if they come to our fest or they pick up my book, they're going to learn a lot more about permaculture, homesteading, you know, how to work with perennial food systems, the benefits of it, the ease of it. Uh, so it's not just like, yeah, just the pawpaw. But I make sure, like in my book, yeah, if you're just interested in, even if you don't even grow them, I've got a wonderful recipe chapter in there or processing, whether you find them, whether you buy them, you don't have to grow them. You know, so I'm trying to appeal to everybody to interact more uh, with this awesome fruit. And yeah, the book was a, was a, it was a lot of fun to create, a lot of community. And I've been learning and I'm good friends with uh, Neil Peterson and Jim Davis. So I think the, that relates, those relationships gave me the confidence uh, to, to go into writing a full book. And it's called a mini-manual. Uh, it's, it's 176 pages. So, you know, it's kind of tongue-in-cheek there almost. But, you know, Jim Davis is the sort of the original Paul Paul Orchardist of our times. A little over 20 years ago, he went whole hog and planted over 1,000 of mostly Neil's varieties. About the time Neil was releasing him, he, he and Jim got together. Because Jim Davis is over here in Westminster, Maryland. They're kind of both 40 minutes from me in either direction. And I relied heavily on them for my learning and editing and making sure that you know, I, was, I was getting everything right. Jim's place uh, is phenomenal. And he is doing that commercial scale. He's, he's sort of experimenting and proving the realities of doing these on a commercial scale. And I write about that in the book. I even do. I have quite a few appendixes in the book. My pawpaws and permaculture, of course. Uh, and then I do a expose on Jim at uh, Deep Run Pawpaw Orchard and just kind of his story, his experience of doing it. Because I think a lot of people are getting excited and some people are jumping in a little too quick 
with, you know, the pawpaw orchard idea. Uh, and I think in the right circumstances, the right locations, the right setup, uh, it can definitely be very profitable. But it is definitely an undertaking um, that I would say would be much more challenging than chestnut orchards. You know, I mean, ideally you mix it up. But I think having access to market is a, is a key one, especially for the pawpaw, which doesn't have uh, much of a shelf life. So if you have an opportunity to kind of get these right out to market, then great. If you don't, you might have an orchard full of pawpaws and, you know, struggling to figure out how to get them to market, uh, you know, within the two or three days that they have out of refrigeration. And that's one of the reasons we don't know these more commonly, because they don't have a shelf life. You know, you handpick is ideal when they're just beginning to ripen. And then you've got two, maybe three days at room temperature to eat them. You can put them in the refrigerator for one or two weeks. But the real beauty of these is you can pulp them and freeze them well for up to two years. So the pulp really lasts nicely. But you got to be on and you got to be ready because these guys start coming off the tree. You know, you got to hustle and you got to be gentle. You can't be rough with these. So, yes, I think pawpaw orcharding is, is, a, is, is a possibility, but I would really, you know, Take your time and research. Check out my book. You know, I talk about Jim, Jim's work and, you know, his his struggles and successes. Uh, and, of course, I always recommend, you know, doing a, a mixture of species anyways. Yeah, speaking about that short shelf life, the first time that I ever bought pawpaws commercially, they were foraged at my local farmer's market. Some folks who sold mushrooms also sold some forest foraged items. And their pawpaws had been picked that morning. I did not realize how short the shelf life was. Take my bag back of like six, as you say, those potato size, they were probably maybe six or eight ounces a piece, you know, three, four ounces of flesh by the time I took off the skin and the seeds, had them on the counter. And I think it was like three days later, the entire house smells of pawpaw. You know, similar like when bananas finally start to go off, how your entire house smells like bananas going off. That's where I was with pawpaws. And I realized that they started to self-ferment on the on the countertop. Yeah, they, they <laughs> oxidize uh, yeah. quickly. But yeah, so going back to another point there with the more selected varieties and some of Neil's work has been to reduce that seed to pulp ratio. So one of the characteristics they're looking for when they're breeding are less seeds, more flesh, right? And so that's so you're getting a lot more out of your pawpaw. You've talked some about foraging for pawpaws if somebody wants to go looking for them, about Jim's large production by planting out one of the first pawpaw orchards, which you say a thousand trees. How many acres was that? Like how much space does a pawpaw take up if someone wanted to consider one in their landscape? He's commercially growing them on eight foot centers within rows and 12 feet between. I forget the number of trees per acre. He's dwindled down now to, I don't know, maybe he has 800 or so trees. And I think he's operating on three, four acres. And he's actually on a bit of a hilltop, not your cliche, you know, pawpaw habitat, uh, but it's wind protected. Uh, and it has forests around it, which I think help with the insect ecology because his are just pawpaws. You know, he's got just pawpaws on drip irrigation. He doesn't really use chemicals because he is an animal lover. Uh, so it's been really interesting to watch his process and how he's doing it. And he's been, I mean, he's been very successful in his harvests. But then, yeah, so yeah, there's that end and then there's the foraging end. And foraging is very popular. It's becoming more popular, which is great. And in the book, in the recipe section, I worked with Alan uh, Burgo, who's known as the Forager Chef uh, in the Twin Cities. And he's a good example of this uh, renaissance 
between foraging and culinary chefs and food and kind of, you know, how do we bridge these worlds together and get people connected again with the woods and the foods from and the wild foods because we, our bodies need and miss wild foods and the, and the components in them. And, you know, Paul Paul really does that. And, you know, I might be going out on a limb here, but, you know, a lot of people will have, if they eat too many pawpaws, I recommend you start slow. The fruit, because some people will kind of get, you know, a little grumbling and maybe they make some go to the bathroom. And, and to me, you know, this is unfounded. To me, this is, this is potentially, you know, nature's medicine working on a, you know, a microbiome that's, you know, been stuffed full of processed foods for a long time. And, you know, and here's a wild food. So I don't think it's a bad thing. And it's never really killed anybody or or even the FDA doesn't say there's an issue with pawpaws. So, you know, if you've heard, oh, pawpaws can make you sick. Well, keep keep that in mind that, you know, who's telling you or what the conditions were. And, and any food out there is going to have allergic reaction from somebody. But I do say, you know, maybe eat like, you know, half a pawpaw your first time. Don't don't jump into a pawpaw patch and eat like 20. It'll clean you out. Oh, maybe that's good for you. But just know that's what's going to happen. All right, I digress. But speaking to, of that, though, I think about how many of our wild foods from talking with foragers over the years often have more fiber to them than what we're used to in a commercial diet. There are a lot of those micronutrients and phytonutrients, and yet you have something like a pawpaw. I don't know what the nutritional assay is on one for fiber and everything off the top of my head. Are you going to flip to an appendix? I'm looking us at this my book here. I was going to say we got a really look, we got a really nice pawpaws are good for you um, illustration here where it talks about 10% fiber. It's got copper, magnesium, potassium, 100% mang- manganese. You know, it's got three times more potassium than an apple, ten times more calcium than a banana or apple. Five to twenty times as much zinc as a banana, apple, orange. So you know, I think if you're vegan, vegetarian. And, you know, you're looking for those nutrient-dense foods, you know, similar to avocados in a lot of ways. Then the pawpaw really should be something, uh, you know, the vegan community and the vegetarian community should really be highlighting because it it is one of nature's, you know, more complete foods. And as opposed to something like avocados, which I love, this at least is something regional. I'm not shipping those all the way across the country from California or South America or where else to get them. No, so. it came to us, thank heavens. And you can freeze it. So that's the trick. So you can have it in your smoothies mm-hmm. every day. It freezes wonderfully. It really does. I pulled out pulp from two years ago and it's in gorgeous condition. So you do it right. You don't let it oxidize. Uh, you freeze it. You can put a little bit of lemon juice on it, keep the color. And then you can have, you know, you know that medicine, that nature's medicine uh, in your smoothies or whatnot, you know, every morning, yeah. capture it. Usually September is the harvest month. Uh, you will down south and southern regions start in August. And then, you know, up in the northern reaches, you know, it'll go into, you know, October. And the tree will grow up into zone four. Very cold tolerant, but getting the fruit to ripen, you know, needs a warm summer. And so the, you know, I am hearing of pawpaws producing in zone 4B to work with the pawpaw in those more northern zones. I would recommend finding out who's working with them in your region and get some of their seedlings versus maybe ordering a grafted one from, you know, a nursery in Tennessee. You know, see who's doing them. Akiva Silver up in New York, Twisted Tree Farm. Uh, he's working with the pawpaw and some of those cold weather genetics. 
Red Fern Farm, Mr. Wall out there in Southeast Iowa. Big chestnut guy too. He's got really good chestnut genetics as well. So you could search him out for, you know, maybe more appropriate pawpaws for cold weather and your chestnuts. And you're a win-win. And so then as people are interested in growing these on their land, it was my question about Jim and how much space they take up is that the pawpaw sounds like a tree that someone could easily put into a food forest on a quarter acre, a half acre, like a small backyard if they had the right location, well-drained soils. What are the kinds of things, I mean, you've mentioned Neil Peterson and his is a name. I met him a couple years ago at an event. He's always out there talking with people about this. People love what he's doing. He has great trees. Um, you've said if you know somebody in your local area who's growing, like what are the kinds of things to look for if someone wants to buy trees or mm. are there any special considerations if they want to try to plant from seed? Great questions. So yes, well, where do I start with that? So there is a spectrum of choice. And there's some, you know, there's some debate, you know, the grafted varieties, you know, give you a guarantee of getting, you know, a certain quality of fruit and sometimes even productivity, a lot of beneficial characteristics. So there's a lot of people in that camp and there's a lot of people in the camp of, you know, what we call more select seedlings. So that's taking the seeds of good, wild, or even taking them from an orchard like Jim Davis's, right? So you take his seeds and you grow them out. Now the parents, so pawpaws come pretty close to heredity, sometimes called true to seed, which means that they have the characteristics of their parents pretty closely. So there's going to be two cross-pollinated that create, you know, the seed and the fruit that you eat. And if those parents are really good cultivars or good wild selections, then you're going to get, most likely, a tree that produces good fruit. Now, it won't be a named cultivar. It's what we call select seedlings. And these are becoming more common in the nursery industry. And I sell a lot of select seedlings at our nursery here uh, that come from all of my grafted cultivars. And so with that, you can really begin to regionalize the genetics. So I think it's not, that's probably probably what like Akiva is doing up in New York or or Redfern Farm, as they probably started out with some of these cultivars and grew them out and said, okay, well, look, these that we've grown out, these select seedlings are doing really well here. So, and, and they're, they're producing and they're, you know, they're, they're ripening in time in our short season. So let's keep working with those seeds and let's spread those seeds around here in the north. And you can start to migrate that and extend, you know, the, the, the growing habitat of the pawpaw. This is where it becomes very exciting because it's such an adaptive species. It's ready to move and work with our species too. So we can take these seedlings and we can keep kind of growing them out and handing them a little bit north and seeing, you know, what works. And it is walking, it is moving, you know, into more and more areas all the time. Really, it, you know, I won't even want really to put too much of a limit on where they can grow. Now they do need dormancy. So, you know, ideally they got 400 chilling hours. So when you get down to Southern California, maybe, you know, Southern parts of Texas, Southern parts of Florida, you know, at this stage, they're not really producing there, but uh, they're pushing their limits up into the north. You know, I've, I've heard of trees in Vermont. And you do also occasionally hear, and it is possible for the trees to pollinate themselves. I wouldn't count on it, but there are recordings of single trees being productive. But typically... They just need another to cross-pollinate with. It's not a male-female thing. It's just having two genetically different trees to, I won't get into this, but I do in the book. Right. You know, just to pollinate with. So, so more the merrier with these. So what I do recommend when you're looking to buy pawpaws is that you buy them young if you're going to buy them. 
because they have a tap root, much like a nut tree, that grows very quickly. So when the seed germinates, it actually puts down like a nine inch deep tap root before it even sends up a shoot, right? So you gotta be patient. Pawpaw seeds germinate very, very good. You know, you get a high percentage. I'll get in the 90% range of my seeds germinating. Most people think that they don't because they don't wait long enough, right? So if you're growing them outside and you're just growing them in the ground, direct seeding them, which is a great idea, you may not see a shoot come up till July. So you've got to be patient. Now, I talk about my book, how you can fast track that and germinate them in 14 days. And then you've got another month for that root to grow down before you send up a shoot too. But it's you can streamline it, so it's actually pretty easy. So with that in mind, you want to buy pawpaws ideally in deep pots, tree pots. Otherwise, that tap root gets compromised. And you know, in my thinking, the pawpaw is adaptive. Even if you had a short pot and you put it back outside, it would probably regrow that tap root and reestablish. Uh, but I like to keep the natural flow of a plant going if I can. And I think you're also going to reduce your risk of that tree becoming uh, drought stressed in its first couple of years if you can keep that whole root in there. So I recommend nine plus inch pots. I grow mine out in 12 inch pots and I try to get them in the ground within a year of Germany because you can graft them on site, what we call site grafting, really well. I've had high success grafting pawpaws. They're very easy. They're just behind apples and pears for ease of grafting. So I will plant out a lot of my seedlings, and if I want to graft them, I'll come back the next year after they've you know, been in the ground, got established, and I'll just site graft them. And I usually have pretty high success rates doing that. Or if they're select seedlings, just let them go. So one thing I would recommend is looking for deep pots. You can get them bare root, but you want if you're going to do that, get them from somebody who really knows what they're doing, someone like Akiva Silver, who gets the timing right, gets you the plants in good quality, good shape. Because that taproot does not like to be messed with. It's, right. it's fleshy. It's a little bit brittle. So pawpaws are hardy, but you need to help them in their infancy. For the first year or two, you have to you know, almost baby them a little bit. And then year three, boom, they go. They're, they're, if they're established, that root gets deep. It actually becomes more drought tolerant as a tree. The growth is huge. The deer don't you know, like the leaves because, again, it has the acetogenins in it. So after year three, the leaves even kind of take on a leathery, leathery look and get tough and the deer won't eat it. They might nibble it when it's young just because deer will nibble anything when it's young. So I might give it a small fence for the first two years. If it's well established year three, I don't worry about it. We have lots of deer. They do not touch our pawpaw trees, you know, year three onwards. So I would look for ideally deep pots. Uh, in my book, I, I mention uh, some, some good nurseries. Uh, see if I can pull up a few here. Of course, our nursery. <laughs> uh, but what is the name of your nursery while you mention Yeah, yeah. Uh, Long Creek Homestead Nursery. So our place is called Long Creek Homestead. So Long Creek Nursery and focuses a lot on pawpaws. Uh, and my other favorites, which are proven really easy and abundant and that we harvest are the American elderberry. The consort black currant, not just any black currant. I've tried, man. I've tried so many varieties. We're in the Mid Atlantic zone six B seven, and really the only one I've had success with worth growing here is the consort, uh, and it's very productive and it's a wonderful food. And then the aronia, the black chokeberry variety Viking. 
I grow those. So in my in our small nursery, mostly pawpaws, select seedlings, then the the consort, the Viking, and the American currants. And then of course I dig up a lot of plants in early spring, a lot of ground covers. I've got different types of running comfries, and I got some really cool, unique plants. But you know, it's a, it's a, just it's one income stream of many. It's not our main focus, so I don't ship or do any of that. I sell a lot of my trees at the Paw Paw Fest. It's kind of a another sort of designed you know market there. You know, bringing together the crossroads of culture, ecology, and economy. I'm always looking how to design those together, uh, and the Paw Paw Fest is a great example mm-hmm. of that. So anyway, let me give a pitch here for nurseries. Uh, one of my uh, good friends and mentors in the pawpaw world is Charlie West uh, of West Farm Nursery. He's up in New Jersey. He will ship you pawpaws in deep pots. He quality grows them, grafts them. Is you know, I can't speak highly enough of him and his quality. So if y'all are listening to this and you want someone to mail you pawpaws, check out Charlie West, West Farm Nursery. And then another great permaculture-based nursery is Peaceful Heritage permaculture nursery and they're down in Kentucky and they're great people and he works a lot and is focusing more and more on pawpaws too so he'll have a diversity of genetics uh, he's growing stuff from KSU Kentucky State University's kind of the land-grant university that's that's leading the the pawpaw research and they have uh, three or four releases as well Atwood Benson and those are good pawpaws with um, a little more focus on commercial viability whether that's for shipping or you know uh, how you know how well they pack. Of course, I, I, li- I mentioned Twisted Tree Farm, Edible Acres, another New York you know nursery permaculture, Food Forest Farm. That's Jonathan Bates, who's an author with uh, Eric Tonesmeyer uh, on on a number of things. They have a they have a permaculture food forest nursery that's really worth checking out. Rolling River Nursery is out in California, Oakland, really solid, awesome people with like social justice focus as well. Really appreciate them. And then Grimo Nut Nursery. Now, Grimo Nut Nursery is up in Canada and really specializes in nuts. The guy, um, what's his name? Ernie Grimo. What a name, right? So Ernie's old school with the nuts and the Northern Nut Growers Association, and he has got some of the most awesome collections of nuts, black walnuts, hickories, chestnuts, I really highly recommend Grimo Nut Nursery uh, for a lot of, of nuts, persimmons, and then pawpaws. And he might have some of the best cold weather pawpaw genetics out there as well. So I highly recommend, of course, Edible Landscaping, Mike McConkey down in Afton, Virginia. He does everything, including pawpaws. Uh, England's Orchard is another one I'll throw out there. Cliff, uh, Cliff England has uh, been working with pawpaws you know, for decades and he's got some really cool genetics, and he'll sell you seeds too. So, uh, if you're looking for seeds, check him out. He'll mail you seeds, and then you can start with some good genetics inexpensively that way. Uh, and there's a few more, of course, in my book, but you got to get it to find out. And for anybody who is interested in your book, that's being distributed through Chelsea Green, or they can pick up a copy directly from you from your website. Yeah. So I'd self-publish. For better or worse, uh, I just I just like the process uh, and not having anyone. You know, say what I can or can't do, and it's it's like a piece of art. You know, when you're working in a community to edit it, you're you know contacting different people for pictures, and it's uh, you know mm-hmm. I design it with a designer, all people I know. So when I'm done, it feels like a really like a complete piece of art that I that I help create. 
And then, yeah, Chelsea Green distributes it and my first book, Edible Landscaping with a Permaculture Twist. And they're wonderful uh, for distributing it. But, you know, self-publishing does mean that I own it and that I buy the books. And I sell retail on my site, uh, signed books. So if you're into having a signed book, you know, get it off my site. Of course, it's on Amazon, ever-present Amazon. Uh, and then through Chelsea Green as well. And, of course, at our Paw Fest. Or if I'm doing a speaking engagement somewhere, I'll always be, you know, have my books with me. So The one thing you've brought up that I wanted to close our conversation with was your Paw Paw Fest. Because this is, as we're recording, it's a couple weeks away. I think this interview will most likely go public a, a couple weeks after. But I am spreading the word around of the festival. So could you give us a bit about that because this is now your fourth year and I imagine it will go in perpetuity as long as you can do it. Yes. So. Yes. The Pawpaw Fest is, is, is fantastic. It's, it's got such a high vibe. The first year we did it, four years ago, we, we just kind of uh, said, hey, we're having a Pawpaw Fest and opened our doors and like 500 people came. And it was like, whoa, it was great because we had a great team of volunteers and people uh, that just barely held everything you know, from bursting at the seams. But it was just such excitement. You know, it bowled us over. In a good way. And so ever since then, you know, it's it's kind of had a life of its own. People are really excited about it. Of course, now we ticket it because we, we can't have more than 500 people. So it's it's it seems to always be the third Saturday in September. So if you're hearing this, come, you know, come next year for our fifth annual. Make sure you get a ticket, though. Uh, and it's a great day. Again, the Paw Paw's the headliner, but then we do food forest tours. You know, we're making Paw Paw ice cream. We have a rocket stove. We're making Paw Paw jam. We've got the earthen oven fired up, you know, making pizzas and bread. And we have great, you know, usually bluegrass-style music. Great kids zone and games and, you know, the people that come to Vend are like friends that, you know, mushroom growers and I think William Padilla um, Brown's coming nice. uh, this time. So a lot of mushroom culture energy in it as well. And just other local crafty, you know, harvesting type, you know, energy people. And, uh, oh yeah, our circular straw bale house is an open house for the festival. And that in itself is worth the journey uh, to see. Uh, it's a thing of beauty that we built from the woods around us, uh, earthen floors throughout, uh, traditional lime plasters and earthen plasters, round wood timber framing, living roof, compost toilet, you know, gray water system with pawpaws on it. You got to see it to believe it. It's, it's, it's phenomenal. And just, you know, just coming for that sometimes is worth it. So it's it's a day to sort of experience permaculture and homesteading in, in our way. And so people think they're coming just for a pawpaw and then they get a whole lot more. So I just can't say enough about it. It's, 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 it's generating culture, you know, which is not easy to do. And I'm really pleased to work with the pawpaw uh, in, in pulling community together. It goes back to that deep taproot that it has, you know. Something I think we're seeking culturally and individually. You know, we're looking for that connection again into the woods, into the earth, deep rootedness. And I, you know, it's no surprise the Paul Paul is is coming up again for us. You know, I think there's a real union here to celebrate. Well, I like what you say there because of all the times that I've gone to festivals and things. There's this great energy when you come together, but a lot of times it's if it's a regional event, you get the people from the region who all know each other come in. And so they already have their community. Then you have the other people who are interested in the subject that come in, but they all then go home afterwards. And so it's not this thing that perpetuates. It's just that one day, that one event. And that things like this that go on year after year after year, where people are coming together around a food, a particular idea, 
or, you know, even sometimes a musician or something, that you have something that is concentrated around this one kind of subject that brings people together, but then that gives them time to get to know one another. You know, they see the same people year after year, their kids are growing up together and things like that. And it really does create something that continues as a community, regardless where people wind up after. So that's really great to hear. Kind of sounds like your podcast in a way, right? Right? You're bringing, bringing us together, the community, and overlapping and cross-pollinating. You know, I really appreciate your, your, your work, your vision for bringing, you know, more of us together in a way that creates culture and ecology. So thank, thank you very much. Well, I'm glad to do it. I mean, you were my first live in-person interview, you know, five years ago, right around the, your son, I think, had just been born. And we were sitting, you know, in the same space then, and we've done some shows together and some other things afterwards, some live events. And it's always been a good time to come and talk to you because of just what you're doing, because it's very on the ground. You're living it, you're doing it. And it's been, you know, we hear your story of being in, in South America doing this work and it still continues here when you're back in the mid-Atlantic and it just continues and it's great. Yeah, So right on. Well, thank you. Is there anything else that you'd like to add to this conversation today before it goes out? into the world. Oh my gosh, I, we've, we've covered, we've covered some, so many uh, wonderful <laughs> favorite things. I think my message is usually just go for it. Um, you don't need to learn a lot before you start. If you're new to permaculture and all this stuff, you know, don't feel like you have to keep reading books to start. Uh, a lot of it is learned by doing it. Really just going out there and trying it and yeah, and, and getting it wrong is one of the best ways to learn. So I'm not saying it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, doesn't hurt to to do a little bit of reading, but don't feel like you have to understand a lot to begin. Just start going for it. And start with the, you know, the things that are proven to be easy. So if you're just getting into growing, you know, I wouldn't necessarily start growing apple trees. You know, I would start with, you know, chestnuts. I would start with the species I mentioned earlier, the aronia. Great, tough, ornamental, productive, easy to harvest type trees. The pawpaw too, you know, after a couple of years, very tough. You know, start with the easy stuff, not the popular stuff. You know, I wouldn't start with cherries and peaches and nectarines and, you know, even pears and apples to start with. You know, go for what we call uncommon fruits. And I'll throw a pitch out there, too, for uh, Lee Reich's book, yes, uh, Uncommon Fruits for Every Garden. A big fan of Lee Reich. Get on his email. Any of his books are very practical. Really kind of get you in relationship to different fruits in an easy way. And again, Lee focuses on stuff that's, you know, that's easy, pretty, you know, straightforward to do. Hardy kiwis, I mentioned those, but those are fun. So yeah, you know, maybe look for what's easy to grow to start with and start from there. Awesome. Well, thank you for that and everything else, Michael. It's always a pleasure. Yeah. Thanks, man. And that was Michael Judd. You can find him, his books, his homestead, and other work at ecologiadesign.com. You'll find a link to his website, many of the nurseries mentioned, and much more in the show notes. Also, in the Patreon feed at patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, you'll find two giveaways related to this interview. One for Michael's book, For the Love of Pawpaws. I also have a giveaway open for a book that Michael mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, Future Scenarios, How Communities Can Adapt to Peak Oil and Climate Change by David Holmgren. Both of those are open until October 10th, 2019. What I love about this conversation, and all the times I've spent with Michael, is his go-do-it attitude and desire to instill that feeling in others. If you find something you love, you can learn enough to get inspired and then go begin. Whatever you'd like to accomplish with permaculture, 
through your successes, failures, and moments of great joy. Take that first step and see where the journey leads you. If I can ever assist you on that path, please get in touch. Call 717-827-6266, email show at thepermaculturepodcast.com, or write The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. From here, the next interviews are a two-part series with David Holmgren discussing his book Retro Suburbia and what we can do to prepare the communities we live in for the future. Until then, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by enjoying pawpaws, learning more about the native fruits in your region, and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.